The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. You can be seated. Now, I know what you're thinking. Uh, Finally, a sermon series on the Old Testament book of Numbers. I have been waiting my whole entire Christian life for this, right? That's probably not actually what you're thinking. Um, And uh, in fact, you might be thinking something very opposite from that. Why? Well, because Numbers has a lot of numbers in it, all right? And we can tend to think that um, that's not actually the the most exciting stuff that we can read in the Bible, right? Uh, Numbers, have you ever tried to read the, the, the Bible all the way through, like straight through? And so you start in Genesis, you made a good start. It was long, but you made it, right? And then you get into Exodus, some, some pretty interesting stuff going on in Exodus. And, and then you hit Leviticus. And let's just be honest, right? Lo- loads of incredibly helpful, masterful stuff in, in Leviticus, right? But if we're, if we're honest, it can be a little bit of a Bible reading slog, all right? And if you make it through, your reward is numbers, right? If you make it through Leviticus, what you get to is numbers and and long lists of numbers and names you can't pronounce and seemingly boring details about how the tribes were arranged, strange laws. There's some weird stories in numbers. A donkey talks, right? Like there's some stuff that's, that's, that's in here. Then rebellion after rebellion after rebellion of God's people, it would seem. Um, If you were making a list of your top 10 books of the Bible, I'd be willing to venture before today, right, that none of us would have put numbers on the top 10 list of our favorite 10 books of the Bible. But let me tell you why we're preaching through it. Uh, Maybe it should make the cut. The book of Numbers, which, which gets its name actually from the long list of names and numbers found in these first four chapters, and then again, another one in chapter 26, it's all about God's Old Testament people in the wilderness years. The 40 years between Mount Sinai on the one end and entering into the promised land of Canaan on the other. It's a time of testing. It's a time of trial. It's a a time of God's people figuring out who they are and whose they are. I love how the late Eugene Peterson likened the book of Exodus to the birth of God's people, Leviticus to childhood, Numbers, he said, is like adolescence. It's a struggling through the wilderness years, moving towards the adulthood of Deuteronomy. Numbers, see, is about the adolescent years of God's people. Do you remember adolescence? (laughs) It wasn't pretty, was it? All right. Well, here we have God's people in their spiritual adolescence seeking to emerge from adolescence, seeking to emerge from the wilderness. Maturing happens in numbers, but probably not the way you think it will. You're also going to come front to face with sanctification in the book of Numbers. You're going to be challenged by the book of Numbers, and you're going to grow. You're going to have to be confronted with discontentment in your life in the book of Numbers. Your struggle with faith, that rebellious spirit that still lives inside of you, you're grumbling. But then later also, blessing, new beginnings, victory, hope, anticipation, inheritance. There's a lot here. 
There's a lot for us to, to, to grow in and learn as we read of God's people here in the wilderness. And one way for you to relate to the book of Numbers is to ask yourself simply and directly right now, what's my wilderness? What's my wilderness? John Bunyan, um, who, who wrote the most famous Christian book outside of the, the, of the Holy Scriptures, right? The Pilgrim's Progress. He begins his brilliant allegory of the Christian life this way. He says, as I walk through the wilderness of this world. See, we're all in the wilderness. On the one hand, your wilderness might be a season or a circumstance in your life. Some sort of unique suffering, some kind of particular affliction, something about your life that is difficult or challenging that you don't like. What's your wilderness? Christian or not, right? By the way, if you're here and you're not a Christian and you've got difficult stuff going on in your life right now, which is all of us, right? If you're trying to grow up, trying to figure out who you are, trying to figure out, you know, God and faith and Jesus, this book is perfect for you. But then from another entry point, as Christians, we're all in the wilderness. We all, like God's people here in the book, have been saved by grace, right? But we're not yet in the promised land of heaven. We're in the wilderness, Like Bunyan's character in The Pilgrim's Progress, we walk through the wilderness of life every day. This is why we came up with the subtitle for this series, Emerging from the Wilderness. It's temporal in one way, emerging from our own sort of spiritual adolescence, trusting in the Lord no matter what our circumstances And yet it's eternal in another way because until Jesus returns or calls you home, guess what? You're in the wilderness, but there will come a day where you won't be anymore. We're going to spend 15 weeks in the book of Numbers. We're going to finish right ahead of Advent, Lord willing. That means we're going to move at a pretty quick clip through the book, all right? This week, what I'm going to do this week is post to Realm our preaching plan for the series so that each week you can read the passages ahead of time and come kind of prepared to hear it exposited in the sermons, right? We're covering the first four chapters this morning. There's a lot here. We can't dig into it all. Also, you'll notice Annie, we didn't make Annie read the whole thing because she'd still be going, for like another 10 minutes, right? Um, So I'll post the preaching plan. You read it ahead of time, and then we'll gather. We'll read some of it together, then we'll dig in. We're digging into the first four chapters this morning. And here's what I want you to take away from these first four chapters of the book of Numbers. God is faithful, and he is powerfully present. Now get ready for war. God is faithful. He's powerfully present. Now get ready for war. That's a decent summary of the first four chapters of the book of Numbers. Now Numbers opens in chapter 1, verse 1, giving us the the setting, the context for what we're about to read. It's important to know, where are we in the history of God's people? Where are we geographically? Like what's going on? Chapter 1, verse 1 tells us, look at this. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai. That's where we're at. In the tent of meeting. On the first day of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt. All right, so we're still at Sinai. 
In fact, from Exodus, way back at Exodus chapter 19, all the way over through the first half of Numbers chapter 10, we're still at Sinai. That whole thing, that whole chunk of scripture happens at Sinai. The Numbers chapter 10 verse 11, they set out from Mount Sinai. But for today, and for the next couple of weeks, we'll, we're still there, and it's 13 months after the Exodus. So remember the history, right? God created everything from nothing, Genesis 1. Eventually in Genesis the Lord calls out to Abraham. He's going to work this plan, his plan, his grand plan of redemption. He's going to work it through Abraham. We're going to come back to that. Abraham had a son named Isaac, who had a son named Jacob, who had 12 sons. We'll come to their names here in a little bit, actually. One of those sons, Joseph, was sold by his wicked brothers, older brothers, into slavery in Egypt. Okay, so if you thought you had family issues and drama, okay, Joseph had a little bit more. Okay, then there's this famine that breaks out. And God blessed Joseph while he was in Egypt and actually raised him up to be Pharaoh, king of Egypt's right-hand man, which meant when the famine broke out, Joseph was actually able to offer sanctuary to his father Jacob and his wicked brothers down in Egypt. And so now we've got God's people living in Egypt. But eventually, Jacob dies. Joseph and all of his brothers die. There's a new king in Egypt, and he turns God's people into slaves for about 400 years. Then God raises up Moses, right? This is the story of the Exodus. And Moses and his brother Aaron become the leaders of God's people, and God brings his people out of Egypt, from Egypt, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He brings the plagues, right? He parts the Red Sea. He drowns out their enemies. He goes with them in the, in the cloud, that whole crazy thing, right? And he leads them all the way to Mount Sinai, where he entered into a covenant with them. That's where they received the Ten Commandments. And at that point, here we have God's people set to live in God's way for God's glory. That's where we begin in Numbers chapter 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses and he said, Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male, head, of, head by head, from 20 years old and upward, and all in Israel who are able to go to war, you and Aaron shall list them company by company. And listen, the, most of the rest of chapter one is census data, right? Numbers. <laughs> and for most of us, uh, numbers are not that interesting, okay? Unless you're like a math nerd, which it's okay if you are. Like, you're welcome here. This is a safe place. For, you know, math nerds, welcome, all right? Um, but actually, numbers are important to all of us if we slow down and think about it. Any baseball fans in the room? couple baseball fans in the room, right? Um, baseball fans love numbers. I mean, we really get geek out about them. You know, Cal Ripken Jr.'s 2,632 straight games played. Somebody counted those. Uh, Nolan Ryan, 5,712 career strikeouts. And we get really excited about that. Um, Mid-September, you start hearing about magic numbers in baseball. How many games left, how many wins left before you secure the pennant and make the playoffs? And then there's weird numbers in baseball too. I don't know if you've ever heard of these things. You know, you got like so-and-so's first home run in the bottom of the six in this ballpark after he ate a hot dog the night before, was wearing white pants and, and petted his dog before the game and, and was batting left-handed, you know, on a sunny day when it was in the mid-70s. That's like a stat or something, you know? It's just like crazy stats and numbers that we keep track of. And if you understand the story behind the numbers, the numbers are interesting. They're important. You don't even have to be a baseball fan to 
know that numbers are interesting and important. If you have high cholesterol, right? If your thyroid is out of whack, if, you, if you're tracking your white blood cell count, hmm? if you're trying to lose weight, those numbers matter. Students, GPA, <laughs> and you're paying attention to that, it matters, right? Um, stock prices, gas prices, interest rates, profit and loss reports. Numbers become interesting and important when we understand the significance behind the numbers. Well, there's a story and a significance behind the numbers of the book of Numbers. And when you realize that, the numbers become extremely significant. If you remember back to Genesis, one of the things that happened in Genesis is that God made a covenant with Abraham. He just made these promises. He made this covenant with Abraham. God promised Abraham three things. Do you remember what the three things were? He did it in in chapter 12 of Genesis, and it's repeated in 15 and 17 also. Three things that are part of this covenant that God made with Abraham. One, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you kids and grandkids. In fact, come outside, look at the stars. See the stars, Abraham? Try to count them. Oh, you can't? <laughs> that's, how, that's how many kids and offspring I'm going to give to you. More numerous than the stars of heaven. Second part of the promise was the land. I'm going to give you the promised land, the land of Canaan, the land filled with milk and honey. I promise I'm going to give that to you. And then the third part of the Abrahamic covenant, the third promise to Abraham, was that through Abraham and his offspring after him, all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. God's got a big plan. Now, leave a finger in Numbers chapter 1 and turn to the left in your Bibles about 60, 60 pages or so um, to Exodus 1. And, and remember the story here. Exodus chapter 1. Abraham, remember, he had a son named Isaac, who had a son named Jacob, who had 12 sons. One of them was Joseph. Joseph was sold into Egypt, and the famine breaks out. All of Abraham's offspring end up in Egypt. Look at Exodus 1 with me, beginning in verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. How many were there? 70 of them. That's not a great nation. All right? Um, That's not numerous. If there were only 70 stars in the sky, given a couple minutes, you could count them all. Right? But now come back to Numbers chapter 1 in the census. Let's skip down to a part we didn't have any read, but in in chapter 1, verse 20, the people of Reuben, Israel's firstborn, their generations by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, head by head, every male from 20 years old and upward, all who were able to go to war, those who listed just in the tribe of Reuben were 46,500. And if you skip over, it keeps going, doesn't tribe by tribe, 12 tribes of Israel corresponding to the 12 sons of Jacob, the same names that we read in Exodus chapter 1, Gad, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, Benjamin, Dan, Asher, Naphtali. And we read this summary in verse 44, these are those who were listed, whom Moses and Aaron listed with the help of the chiefs of Israel, 12 men, each representing his father's house. So all those listed of the people of Israel by their father's houses from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war in Israel, all those listed were 603,550. 
That's a great nation. And that's literally not even the half of it. That's just the the men who are aged 20 years and up, right? So when you add women and children, we're talking on the order of two and a half million people. It's a great nation. The point, God is faithful to his word. He's faithful to his word. This is the first thing for God's people to remember in the wilderness. You see why these numbers matter? Why they're not boring but important and significant? Like, do you have any doubt in the faithfulness of God? Run the numbers. Run the numbers. God is faithful to his word. He made a promise and he delivered. He always delivers on his promises. He always delivers on his word. This is the first thing for God's people to remember in the wilderness. This is the first thing for you to remember in your wilderness. God always makes good on his promises. You ever have someone make a a promise to you and then break it? Like they promised that they're going to do something and they didn't. Or they, they said that they promised they're not going to do something and then they did. Said they love and support you until death do you part, but then they parted. Or they didn't love you, they didn't support you. God never does that. Never. He never has. He never will. God is faithful to his word. You can take it to the bank. Whatever he says, he does. Whatever he promises, he delivers. And you need to remember this. You need to believe this moment by moment in the wilderness. For example, um, when you're struggling in any kind of way, one of the things that you need to remember in the wilderness while you're struggling is that he who began a good work in you will see it through to completion. He will present you to himself spotless and without blemish one day. When you feel like you're completely alone in this world, you need to remember that he will never leave you and never forsake you. He loves you and supports you. He's for you. For better or for worse, for richer or poor, he doesn't care about that. In sickness and in health, and not even in death, will he depart from you. And you remember that there's more joy in Jesus than you'll find anywhere else. That's a promise that Scripture makes to us. There's more joy in God than anywhere else. And it's a deep, soul-satisfying joy. That no one's ever going to snatch you out of his hand. You need to remember that and believe that, that you belong to him and always will. That in Christ, your sins are forgiven. All of them. (laughs) That there really is no condemnation for you. That there really is nothing to fear. That he really is sovereign over everything. That you really are a royal priest. Like you matter to God. He hears your cries. He hears your prayers. And one day, Jesus is going to return and every tear from your wilderness living eyes is going to be wiped away. He's going to give you a new body that's never going to wear out again. 
It's never going to get too old to do what you love to do again. It's never going to get chronic illness again or cancer again. You're never going to hate it again. You will dance in the streets of the new Jerusalem and dine at the table with Jesus himself. A couple weeks ago, I was reading Psalm 119 early in the morning. This, summer, or this, this year, really, for my personal devotions, I've just been going slowly through the Psalms, kind of categorizing them and for my own life in some ways. And 147 verses in to Psalm 119, I found this little gem. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. That's it right there. As Christians, no matter what wilderness you're in, you have hope because God is faithful to his word. Hope in his word. God is faithful to his word. Numbers teaches us that. And when you doubt it in the wilderness, run the numbers. It's the first thing that we're to remember in the wilderness. The second thing for us to remember in the wilderness is that God is powerfully present with his people. Right After the census in chapter 1, there's a paragraph about the Levites being exempted from the count. We're going to come back to that. And then in chapter 2, it's all about the arrangement of the camp. Okay, when it comes to chapter 2, in some ways, not to diminish the, the, the revealed word of God in any sort of way, but in some ways, a picture is worth a thousand words, okay, or 592 in this case. 34 voices, verses. Uh, here's the arrangement when you work out the, the details of chapter 2. There's an arrangement. And notice the placement of the tabernacle. Right smack dab in the middle, isn't it? Why is that significant? Well, because that's where the presence of God dwelled, in the tabernacle, and now in the midst of his people. See, God doesn't just say to his wilderness-ready travelers, hey, trust me, everything's going to be fine, just do what I say. Right? No, he's, he goes with them in their midst. He is present with them. Not only is he present with them, he's powerfully present with them. Something interesting happens in Numbers chapters 1 through 4. If you read it all together and you kind of trace it out, it has to do with the Levites. In the last chapter of chapter 1, last paragraph, sorry, of chapter 1, we read that the Levites were exempted from that census. The reason for that is that they have a special purpose. They're, they're not to be the war fighters, but the tabernacle tenders. All right, they're, the, they're the set up and tear down team, to use church planting terms. Okay? And, and they serve in place of the firstborn of Israel. That's what all that firstborn and redemption money stuff is about. But as we read Numbers 1 through 4, their duties and responsibilities are shared with us in greater and greater detail. It starts out broad at the end of chapter 1. Look at verse 50. God says, appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony and over all its furnishings and over all that belongs to it. They're to carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings. They shall take care of it and shall camp around the tabernacle. When the tabernacle is to set out, the Levites shall take it down. And when the tabernacle is to be pitched, the Levites shall set it up. And if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. The people of Israel shall pitch their tents by their companies, each man in his own camp and each man by his own standard. But the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony so that there may be no wrath on the congregation of the people of Israel. And the Levites shall keep guard over the tabernacle and the testimony. So they're in charge of set up and tear down, 
right, carrying all the stuff, keeping guard over the tabernacle. They're also to camp around the tabernacle, forming this protective buffer zone right between the tabernacle and the rest of the Israelites, keeping guard over the tabernacle. But then in chapter 3, we get another description of their duties and responsibilities beginning in verse 5, and it's more specific. It's more detailed, specifically about this guarding business. Look at chapter 3, beginning in verse 5. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near, and set them before Aaron the priest, that they may minister to him. They shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister at the tabernacle. They shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. Notice the stronger, more elaborate, more specific emphasis on the guarding. The Levites are to guard Aaron and guard the whole congregation and guard the furnishings and guard the people. As you keep reading in chapter 3, we meet three sons of Levi, the, the three sub-tribes within the people of the Levites, Gershon, Kohath, Merari, and a high-level summary of, of each of the tribe's duties. And then in chapter 4, it gets even more specific. More time, more text given to the duties of the Kohathites, the Gershonites, and the Marathites. Look at chapter 4, verse 4. This won't be on the screen, but let's just, let's just read a little bit here. This is the service of the sons of Kohath in the tent of meeting. The most holy things. When the camp is to set out, Aaron and his sons shall go in and take down the veil of the screen and cover the ark of the testimony with it. Then they shall put on it a covering of goat skin and spread on top of that a cloth of all blue and shall put in its poles. And over the table of the bread of the presence, they shall spread a cloth of blue and put on it the plates, the dishes for incense, the bowls and the flagons for the drink offering, the regular showbread also shall be on it. Then they shall spread over them a cloth of scarlet and cover the same with a covering of goat skin and shall put in its poles. And they shall take a cloth of blue and cover the lampstand for the light and with its lamps, its tongs, its trays and all its vessels of oil for which it is supplied. They shall put it with all its utensils in a covering of goat skin and put it on the carrying frame. And over the golden altar they shall spread a cloth of blue and cover it with a covering of goat skin and shall put in its poles. And they shall take all the vessels of the service that are used in the sanctuary and put them in a cloth of blue and cover them with a covering of goat skin and put them in a carrying frame. And they shall take away the ashes from the altar and spread a purple cloth over it. And they shall put on it all the utensils of the altar, which are to be used after, for the service there. The fire pans, the forks, the shovels, the basins, the utensils of the altar. And they shall spread on it a covering of goatskin and shall put in its poles. And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary as the camp sets out, after that, the sons of Koath shall come to carry these but they must not touch the holy things lest they die. These are the things of the tent of meeting that the sons of Kohath are to carry. See, as we read on from chapter 1 to chapter 4 with respect to the Levites, it's as if we're getting closer and closer to the specifics, closer and closer to the tabernacle, closer and closer to the powerful presence of God, closer and closer to His holiness, See, one of the main roles of the Levites in the wilderness was to protect the other Israelite tribes from the awesome holiness of God's presence, which is present with them there in the tabernacle. In other words, God isn't just present with his people in some generic way. 
He's powerfully present. He's awesome and holy. And to get too close to touch the wrong thing was to die. That's what's up with the blue cloth. Don't touch anything underneath the blue cloth. Even the Kohathites, you'll die. We're even reminded of the story of Nadab and Abihu in chapter 3, verse 4. Remember them from Leviticus chapter 10? Who played fast and loose with unauthorized fire and God consumed them with fire, fire of his holiness. Here's the point. He's an awesome and powerful and holy God. And he's present with his people. He's powerfully present with his people. You know, besides all the numbers in the book of Numbers, there's a lot of names. And we just looked at some of them, Gershon, Kohath, Merari, and then there's the sons of Gershon, and the sons of Kohath, and the sons of Merari, right? I mean, the, the Levites all together, they were exempted from the census in chapter 1, but they're actually counted twice in these opening chapters. Once in chapter 3, all the males, 20 and up, or no, sorry, one year and up, and then again in chapter 4, all the men, 30 to 50. There's a lot of names in these chapters, and lists of names can be as numbing to our 21st century eyes as lists of numbers until, like with numbers, we understand the significance of the names. See, names are like numbers. They only have significance if we understand why they're there. Think of lists of names in our day and how they matter, why they matter. Um, the honor roll, the depth chart for your favorite college football team is coming out soon right? Uh, obituaries. War memorials. You can bet there are friends and family of people who are very interested in a list of names being created in Maui right now. Why do we do that? Why do names matter? Because people matter. They matter to God. God isn't just present in general. He isn't just powerfully present in some obscure, impersonal way. He's powerfully present with his people. They matter to him. Their names matter. Their clan names matter. Their tribal names matter. Their specific names matter to him. And to hear yourself named by God helps you to know that you matter, helps you to know he's powerfully present with you. And so the second thing for God's people to remember in the wilderness is sort of three things all rolled up into one. That God is powerfully present with his people. This is the second thing for you to remember in your wilderness. God is powerfully present with you. With you. John chapter 1 verse 14, talking about Jesus. It says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Tabernacled is the literal translation of that word. Jesus tabernacled among us. Matthew 28, the great commission, before he ascended back up to heaven, what did he say? Behold, I'm with you always till the end of the age. 1 Corinthians 6, your body is a, a temple where the Holy Spirit of God dwells. He's in you. Hebrews 13, he'll never leave you. Church, God is present with you and in you. More, he's, more than that, he's powerfully present with you. The same spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, Romans 8.11 says. In you. 
Do you realize that? That God is powerfully present in you. He knows your name. John chapter 10, the sheep hear his voice. He calls his sheep by name. I'm the good shepherd, Jesus says. I know my own, and my own know me. Listen, no matter what wilderness you're in, going through, trying to emerge from, Jesus knows you. Jesus is with you. Jesus is powerfully present with you. You matter to him. You matter to him. We need to remember that and believe that in the wilderness. And then the third thing to remember in the wilderness is that God prepares his people for war. That sounds kind of shocking to our modern ears, doesn't it? What we have to realize is that Numbers is a book about a journey. Starts in one place, ends in the other, tells us about the story between, in between, but it's all headed somewhere. God has and is fulfilling the first part of the great promise to Abraham. They are a great nation, and they're going to continue to grow and be even more greater. Now they're headed to the promised land, the second part of that covenant he made with him. And when they cross over the Jordan, he's going to drive out the Canaanites through him. That doesn't happen until the book of Joshua, actually, in the Old Testament. But in Numbers, God is preparing his people for that. He prepares them for war. One of the things to watch for when you're reading uh, Old Testament history books, Old Testament narratives in the, in the Bible, one thing to watch for is repeated phrases. They draw significance um, to, to the text we're reading. So back in chapter 1, when the census was commanded, chapter 1, verse 3 said this, from 20 years old and upward, all in Israel who were able to go to war, you and Aaron shall list them company by company. And then when you get into the actual census itself, listen to, to what we read. We saw this already about Reuben. The people of Reuben, Israel's firstborn, their generations, by their clans, by their father's houses, according to the numbers and names, head by head, Every male from 20 years old and upward, all who were able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Reuben were 46,500. Other people of Simeon, their generations, by their clans, by their father's houses, those of them who were listed according to the numbers of names, head by head, every male from 20 years old and upward, all who were able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Simeon were 59,300. We keep going, right? The people of Gad, all those who were able to go to war. The people of Judah, every man able to go to war. The people of Issachar, every man able to go to war. The people of Zebulun, every man able to go to war. Of the people of Joseph, every man able to go to war. Of the people of Manasseh, all the people able to go to war. Of the people of Benjamin, every man able to go to war. Of Dan, of Asher, of Naphtali, every man able to go to war. And then chapter 1, verse 44, the summary. These are those who were listed among Moses and Aaron, listed with the help of the chiefs of Israel, 12 men, each representing his father's house. So all those listed of the people of Israel by their father's houses from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war in Israel. All those listed, 600,550. In case you're missing it, <laughs> right? The central concern of a census 
in Numbers chapter 1 is determining the number of men available for war. And as we read on, we see God preparing them. We see God transitioning a a, a band of free but unorganized slaves that he delivered up out of Egypt into an organized people preparing for conquest in the promised land. There's order, there's leadership, there's duties that are assigned, there's resources that are calculated, there's community that is organized and arranged, in a word, prepared. Prepared for war. And another point of the arrangement of the camp in chapter 2 is that he's going with them into this war. All the duties and responsibilities of the Levites in chapter 3 and 4 are telling us God is going with them into this war. What an incredible assurance for God's wilderness people. They're being prepared for war, and yet God, the all-powerful, awesome, holy one, he's going with them. Additionally, they all have a part to play. He names them, lists them, not simply so they know their love, not simply so they know they matter and that he's with them, but so they know they've all got a role to fill in the battle. Every single one of them is to expect war. God prepares his people for war. And we need to remember this too. Look, the, the, the Christian life is, is not aiming at some ideal that looks like an extended vacation or a lifelong sabbatical from responsibilities, problems, and pain. Or as one of my pastor friends lovely, lovingly reminded me one time when I needed to hear it, um, utopia does not exist on this side of heaven. Right? No, the Christian life is war. Paul says that in Ephesians 6 and Romans 7. You need to expect that. You need to believe that. You need to prepare for that. If not, you'll always be chasing utopia and you'll be constantly frustrated when your life doesn't feel like a vacation. For these Israelites... There was a war on the other side of the wilderness. They're preparing for that. And so far, they're actually preparing pretty well for it. In fact, looking again at at repeated phrases, there's a set of repeated phrases that we see over and over in these first four chapters. The first half of the set, the Lord spoke. The Lord, it shows up 11 times in these first four chapters. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, or the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, 11 times. Equally showing up 11 times. And always in response to the first phrase is the phrase, Moses did all that the Lord commanded. Or, uh, thus did the people of Israel. They did all in accordance with what the Lord commanded. The point, they're starting out pretty well. They're preparing well for war on the other side of the wilderness. What they failed to prepare well for, though, was war in the wilderness. A different kind of war. Not a geographic war, but a spiritual one. A a war of faith and trusting in the Lord. A, a, A war of praise and worship and purity. A war against discontentment and grumbling. That war doesn't go so well for the Israelites in the first half of the book of Numbers. And we can learn from that. 
See, for us, the war beyond our wilderness has already been won as Christians, hasn't it? It's already taken care of. The same Jesus, it's been won by Jesus, the same Jesus who came and conquered sin and death. He's the ultimate fulfillment of the Levites who take the place of the firstborn of the Israelites in our text today. He's our substitute. He's our redemption. He paid the price. And many of us have prepared for the war beyond the wilderness by trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone for salvation. When you trust in him, that victory is yours. It's yours. It's secure. When you die or he returns, he's going to usher you into heaven. Oh, it's great. And if you haven't prepared for that war yet, today's the day to do that. To trust in Jesus for victory over sin in your life and death. And yet, once we do that, a war remains for us as we walk through the wilderness of this world. War with the world and the flesh and the devil. Just like the Israelites of old, it's not enough for us to just prepare for the, world, for the war on the other side of the wilderness. We need to expect and prepare for war in the wilderness, moment by moment, every single day. Just like them, it's a, it's a war of faith and trusting in the Lord, a spiritual war. A war of praise and worship. A war against our discontentment and our grumbling. A war with battles of death and doubt and disappointment. Sin and sadness. Sickness. Suffering. Pain. Physical pain. Emotional pain. Relational pain. Boredom. Meaning purpose, work and wrestling and weeping, weakness, weariness, waiting. In a word, it's war. Church, these things that I just listed off are not a crisis of faith. They're the opportunity for faith, for trusting in the all-sovereign and holy and awesome one who's with you, of obeying. God wants to prepare you for this war. How do you prepare for the war? By believing that God is faithful to his word. By believing, by trusting, by the power of the Holy Spirit, right, that he is powerfully present with you. And by hearing his voice through his word when he speaks it to us and doing all that the Lord commands. Trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus and victorious in the war of your wilderness but to trust and obey. Let's pray. Father, we know that final victory has been won. It is ours. It's incredible. It became ours when we trusted in Jesus. But between here and there, we're on a journey in the wilderness. Help us now, Lord. Help us to believe by faith that you are faithful. Help us now, Lord, to believe and experience by faith you are powerfully present with us in the wilderness war.
And you are delivering us to our heavenly promised land. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.